0: When you try to describe the beauty and the power of the work of Jesus on the cross, there are numerous true ways that you can go about that. You could speak of Jesus laying down his life as a demonstration or an example of God's love. How much does God love us? This way of thinking about the cross would say, here's a demonstration, an example of God's great love. You can speak of Jesus dying on the cross in order to crush the serpent, to defeat the devil, Hebrews 2 would say. The Christ died to defeat the devil, or in 1 John, to destroy the works of the devil. There is, in other words, a defeat of the evil one on the cross. You can speak about Jesus satisfying the justice of God. And therefore being what the Bible calls our propitiation. In Romans 3, God put forward his son as a propitiation. That he would satisfy the wrath of God and avert the wrath of God that was due upon sinners because of his own satisfactory work. You can speak of Jesus accomplishing reconciliation. That's a way of thinking about the cross. That they are, we are sinners alienated from a holy God. And Jesus reconciles unrighteous sinners To a holy God. You can speak of Jesus dying to rescue us. Thinking about a plight from which we need deliverance. So he is dying on the cross as a savior, a deliverer. You can speak of Jesus dying in the place of sinners to bear the penalty for their sin. Meaning that his death is a substitutionary death. You can speak of Jesus dying in order to cancel spiritual debt. That in Christ alone are we justified. Because all of our debts... Have been canceled at the cross. You can speak of Jesus dying in order to liberate captives. Think about a picture of enslavement or bondage to sin and death. And Jesus is the great liberator who has entered into our exile. And brought a new exodus. These many ways of speaking about the work of Christ. Are to demonstrate that the atonement is like a massive diamond that gleams on many different sides as you turn it in the light to rejoice in and reflect on all the true things you can say about the cross you can say all of those things so if someone were to say well on the cross is Jesus our example is he our Rescuer? Is he our substitute? Is he our debt collector? Is he our judgment satisfier? Is he our serpent crusher? Is he our means of reconciliation? Is he our liberator? Which one? Well, of course, the problem would be the language, which one? We're not pitting any of these truths one against another. And I want to add an image for the crosswork of Jesus today from 1 Timothy 2. In 1 Timothy 2, the Apostle Paul is going to help us think about the word ransom. What is the death of Jesus on a cross that was raised up outside Jerusalem? His death is a ransom. And what is it that drives Paul to speak about the work of Jesus at all at this point in his argument? He has given us this exhortation in verse 1 of the chapter to pray for all kinds of people. To make supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgivings. All kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. And he he singles out in verse 2 a group known as the kings and those in high positions. So that in praying for their salvation and in praying for their wisdom. an effect would take place upon the church of Jesus. That we would live a peaceful and quiet life. Godly and dignified in every way. So Paul wants us to pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. And he says in verses 3 and following that this is a good thing to pray this way. It's good and it is pleasing in the sight of God. God is, he calls at the end of verse 3, our Savior. So the reason we would pray for salvation for kings and those in high positions is because the kind of God we pray to is our Savior. He's a saving God. And he desires in verse 4 all people to be saved. Likely meaning here all kinds of people. The wise and the foolish according to the world. The rich and the poor. The young and the old. The men and the women. The the gospel is this declaration to sinners to come and be saved. Because according to Isaiah 45 and in verse 22, God says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. There it is. There's the global proclamation. To the ends of the earth, God says, turn to me and be saved. For I am God and there is no other. Isaiah 45, 22. Now, what drives Paul to speak about the work of Jesus on the cross in verse 5 and 6? Because what is good and pleasing in the sight of God, praying all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people, is in keeping with God's command to the nations to be saved. And the reason God commands the nations to be saved and to turn to him is because in verse 5, there's one God. And the reason they're to pray all kinds of prayers for people to be saved in the gospel to the ends of the earth is because there is one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. So we pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people because a ransom for them was given. So the, the verses we're looking at in verses 5 to 7 are continuing to explain the command that our heart might be shaped with a global perspective, and that we not see others the way the world does, ranking them and grouping them in tribes and camps, but that we see image bearers in need of a savior. And that our message to them is Paul's message that there is a there is a ransom that has been offered. And so we say to the ends of the earth, turn and be saved for there is God and there is no other but God to save. In verses five to seven, what he's doing is explaining his logic that we should pray in the way that he calls us to in verse one, asking God to show mercy and to save sinners. We should pray that God would save sinners throughout the nations because there's only one God and one mediator between sinners and God. And it is the man Christ Jesus, the ransom sinners i want to make four observations in the passage this morning four observations in these three verses the first half of verse five let's reflect on first observation here there is one god the one god this is an emphatic statement not originating in the new testament of course but deeply rooted in the way they think about the world in the old testament In the Old Testament, we hear things like Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And declaring the unity of God is in a context in chapters 5 and 6 of Deuteronomy, where the the reality of there being one God to worship is also laid out. So to declare that the Lord our God is one is at the same time to confess the non-existence of every other supposed God every other idol, every other form of worship. There is one God, Paul proclaims. And he says this to Timothy, who's currently ministering in Ephesus. Ephesus was a city that did not believe there was only one God. One of their most famous architectural wonders that I've spoken about in previous Sundays together is the temple to Artemis, the goddess whose temple was a massive wonder of the ancient world. And so one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was a wonder to the world and an abomination to God because this was, in its, though it being in a, a beautiful and aesthetically pleasing place in terms of grandeur and impressive stature and scope, it was a place of false worship. A God who was no God. Artemis, no goddess who existed. This language in 1 Timothy 2.5 says, for there is one God. The reason we call... In prayer for God to save sinners is because there is no other God saving sinners. There's one God. And this one God has made himself known in his word and through various redemptive acts in human history culminating in the cross. There has been no greater demonstration of God's heart towards sinners and his mercy upon the needy than what he has demonstrated in Jesus There is one God. This is an emphatic denial of the existence of other gods. False worship is not neutral, however. Paul teaches that in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, an idol, he says, has no real existence. But he does teach in 1 Corinthians 11 that false worship is giving in to demonic and satanic deceptions. So, while the supposed gods of the ancient world were not real, the wicked principalities alluring sinners into false worship are real. And he says there is one God. In 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, Paul says, There's one God, the Father, from whom all things are made and for whom we exist, one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. This is a needed message for Ephesus, a message that would not have been popular. They might have said to Paul, you are so narrow-minded. You're so narrow-minded, Paul. You're, you're so exclusivist. I mean, doesn't it, doesn't it seem more loving and more tolerant to say, well, we got all these gods. And you just kind of go toward and, and worship really what jives best with you, Paul. I mean, why can't you just do that? Because Paul says, well, those other gods aren't gods. There's only one God. And you see, the problem with polytheism is that it is a lie and the supposed loving affirmation of many religions throughout the world to say, well, everybody's got their truth, and everybody's got their way, and and God is just in the end expecting us to uh, find our own path. Well, Paul says, see, the big problem with that is there's one God. You know, if there were many gods, there might be then many paths, but Paul here is insisting on this truth. There is one God. Observation number two. There is one mediator. This is important after the first observation. He's saying that there is one God and there is one mediator now between this God and sinners. Men here refers to men and women. Sinners and this uh, made in the image of God in this world. There is one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus. One mediator. One God. So if someone were to say to Paul, okay, so not only are you saying that there's only one God, you're saying that in terms of going beyond this life into a place of heavenly glory and communion and peace, you're saying there's one way? Paul says there's one mediator. One mediator. You see, the the problem with saying that there are many paths to God is you would be insisting that there are ways to God beyond the mediating work of Jesus. It would be to deny the effective atoning work of Jesus on the cross, which was necessary for the lost. Of what use is the cross if there are many ways to God besides Jesus? He says there's one God. There is one mediator between God and men. A mediator is a go-between. That's what a mediator is, right? To mediate means there's a party on the side, there's a party on this side, and, and you're you're envisioning someone going between. There is one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. He's called in, in uh, Titus chapter 2 verse 13. Titus 2:13, Jesus is our great God and Savior we have to immediately avoid an error here that emphasizing the man christ jesus must mean that he's only human and not divine some people in church history have looked at this and said okay he's emphasizing the man christ jesus but you see the humanity of jesus is genuine according to a verse like this it doesn't deny his deity to affirm his humanity That's not what we want to, um, that's not an error we want to make. Instead, we see that both are acknowledged in the letters of Paul. He calls Jesus our great God in Titus 2.13. So the same writer of 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus holds forth the truth of Jesus' deity and Jesus' humanity. Why then the emphasis? He doesn't just say there's one mediator, Christ Jesus. He takes a moment to say... The man Christ Jesus. And people have reflected much on this as theologians in church history. The man Christ Jesus. One is a man named Anselm of Canterbury. Anselm said that man has committed sin against God. And therefore it is man who owes the wages of sin. So he says, and I quote, Salvation could not have been done unless man paid what was owed to God for sin. The debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it. So that the same person, the one who pays the debt of sin, must be both man and God. The one who is our representative. The one who comes as the incarnate son to do as man. What man cannot do merely as man. But the one who is both God and man can do. Anselm is right. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says that Jesus is both truly God and truly man. And the incarnation is necessary because we die in the wages of sin. And only man can die. And if God could come as man then not only could he die as God, he could do it perfectly as both God and man. The Lord Jesus Christ is exactly the one we need. There is one mediator between God and man: the man Christ, Jesus, the man Christ, Jesus mediatorship is not an unfamiliar term to Jewish readers of Paul's letters in the first century. They knew what it was to have a a history as Israelites with a mediator. Because they knew Moses. Moses was their great mediator. A covenant mediator in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Moses was such a towering figure in the lives of the Israelites and in their scriptures. They rightly viewed Moses as the one who would come to them and come to God. And as their mediator, he would make known words of God to them and represent them to God. A mediator did that kind of thing. What the Lord Jesus does... As the mediator, as he represents fallen man unto God, as Jesus takes our sin upon himself. Jesus was not in his own person, someone born in sin, nor did he have a corrupted and human nature. Instead, as the one truly God and truly man, our sins are counted to Jesus so that he might represent the sinner, the transgressor before God. And as God accomplish a perfect atoning work. He is a greater Moses. You see, Moses could mediate for the Israelites, but he could not save them. Moses could go between God and the Israelites and give them words from God, but Moses wasn't the word of God. The word became flesh, however, in the Lord Jesus. Jesus is a true and greater Moses. Jesus is the greatest mediator the scripture has ever reported. Every other previous prophet and mediating voice in the Old Testament pales in comparison to the atoning voice and work of Jesus who has come to say it is finished and die on the cross as a ransom. He is the man Christ Jesus. He is our great God and Savior. The Savior must be both God and man to pay the ransom due to God by men. And Jesus pays it as the God-man. Third observation, we've looked at the statement, one God, the statement, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. This takes us into verse 6. And then the fourth observation will be verse 7. This third, this third observation is about the ransom. One God, one mediator, there's a ransom, one ransom. In verse 6, this man Christ Jesus is described as the one who gave himself. Now that subordinate idea it's connected to the man Christ Jesus in the previous verse why is the mediatorship of Jesus effective verse 6 answers this verse 6 explains why there is only one mediator because there is a ransom that has been given for all and the ransom is Jesus the ransom isn't something Jesus gave apart from himself Jesus is the ransom given In verse 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. When you look in the Gospels, places like Mark 10.45 tell us that Jesus himself understood his mission to be this. Mark 10.45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Just think about the, the overlap of that language with 1 Timothy 2. Jesus says, the son of man, referring to himself, has come to give his life as a ransom. And Paul says, well, you know what our mediator did? And you know why there's only one mediator? This man, Christ Jesus, gave himself as a ransom. In other words, Paul believes exactly what Jesus taught of his own mission and work during his earthly ministry. It is not a taking of the life of Jesus against his will. Look carefully at the language in verse 6. He gave himself. In John 10, he says, no, no one takes my life from me. Oh, they will think at the time that's what they're doing. That they will think that when I'm arrested and when I'm tried and when I'm flogged and when I'm crucified, that all of this is involuntary. It's not. We're told in John's gospel that over and over again, conspiracy rose against him or people plotted to take his life. And yet his hour had not yet come. And so all of their plots fell apart until the time when the appointed hour would be fulfilled and the Lord Jesus would give himself. He says in John 10, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So what he's doing When you think about the cross, what you're looking at is the laying down of Jesus' life. He gives himself as a ransom for all. This idea of ransom brings to mind payment. If you imagine someone that needs release, a terrible situation of captivity where someone says, here's the price, a ransom in order to secure liberation. You think about this in times of slavery or kidnapping. Think about this in terms of purchasing someone's freedom. There is a ransom. So there's a situation where ransom brings about a different outcome. I think this is wrapped up with the idea of redemption. Redemption is to bring out into free by means of a price. By means of a ransom. Redemption is accomplished by the giving or paying of a ransom. Sometimes in church history, people have wondered from time to time, okay, ransom, a price. But paid to whom? And some people have been quick to say, well, if, if, if uh, Jesus is a ransom, then this payment, man, maybe it's, maybe it's to the devil. So that the devil has humanity, and so Jesus is paying the ransom. Devil, what's the price? Your life, Jesus. And Jesus is like, okay, I'm going to lay down my life, and then you're going to let the humanity go. But the scripture never clearly teaches anywhere in the Old and New Testaments that Jesus pays a price to the devil. I don't think that is the right understanding of this ransom idea. This idea of a price to be paid is the wages of sin, which is death, spiritual condemnation, which God would be just to apply to us in his holiness and righteousness And the ransom or the substitutionary work is offered up to God himself. We are saved from God by God. We are saved from his judgment by his mercy. We are delivered from condemnation by his grace. We are not those purchased by Christ as a ransom given to the devil. Instead, the ransom satisfies the justice of God and defeats the devil this ransom is a reference to the giving of Jesus's life he gave himself it's a a a language here about his death this is about the cross he gave himself as a ransom for all and this idea of all is likely in continuity with the previous understandings of all kinds and groups Just like in verse 1, he urges that prayers be made for all kinds of people, such as kings and all who are in high places, and God desires these kinds of groups to be saved, you get the impression in 1 Timothy 2 that the false teachers might have had some kind of exclusivist bent to their teaching. As if the gospel and prayers and Christian living ought to go toward certain kinds of people. And Paul seems to be pushing against that, saying, actually, the gospel is for the Jew and the Gentile, for the rich and the poor, for those of high political position and those of none. So the making of prayer and the desiring of salvation for it, and the providing of the ransom for is to go against, I think, any impulses we have that God ought only show mercy to certain groups. We don't want to commit the error of Jonah. Where God said to Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. He said, I'm not going to preach at Nineveh. I want those people to be judged. And those are a bunch of Gentiles who, if their Assyrian nation continued, since Nineveh was part of Assyria, those Assyrians would likely come to Israel's doorstep and be used by God for the judgment of the land. Historically, that is exactly what happened. Jonah wanted nothing to do with God delivering penitent Ninevites. He was very ethnocentric in his concerns. Very much about Israel as Israel, as a people in the land. And God said to go to Nineveh, and he said, I want no part of that. Jonah's error here in the Old Testament was really representative of a larger problem within the nation as a whole when he was alive. His contemporaries did not have a heart of love and a desire of salvation for the nations. They wanted to see judgment fall upon them. And I wonder if that bent or inclination rises within our hearts from time to time. If we see someone come to know Christ and we think, really, that person? That person's a Christian? Or we might think to them to ourselves, there's no way anything good like grace and mercy is ever coming to that person. Not after what they're doing. We might easily... Include people we would favor and exclude people from the notion of the grace of God that we would despise and all of a sudden, all of a sudden what we can find at work within us is some glimpse of a Jonah mentality the exclusivists in Timothy's day were not to prevail instead God's heart was for the ends of the earth that people would turn and be saved because the ransom was given for both Jew and Gentile. And therefore, that exclusivist stuff needed to go. They needed to preach the gospel far and wide. They needed to preach the gospel near and close. They needed to proclaim Christ crucified for sinners because Jesus is the only ransom and mediator between God and men. He gives himself as a ransom. In fact, we know that this ransom, this price of redemption, has to do with the death of Jesus and not something other than his death. Listen to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, 1.7, Paul says, In Christ, we have redemption through his blood. So our ransom is the death of Jesus. Our redemption is through the means of his laying down his life upon a cross. It is the payment for our sin. It is the satisfaction of the wages of sin in our place as he is a substitute. This is why we don't want to pit one understanding of the atonement against another. The reason the ransom of Christ is effective is because Christ dies a substitutionary death. And the reason he dies an effective substitutionary death as our ransom is because it satisfies the justice of God. All of these things converge in an overlapping, glorious way to portray this beautiful depiction of what we're trying to say is the power of the cross. The power of the cross. It tells us here in verse 6 that this is a testimony given at the proper time. This could be a bit of a confusing phrase because we're used to some particular person giving testimony about something else. So who's giving this testimony here? It says he gave himself as a ransom, which is the testimony. So this is going to be a little bit different of a way of thinking of testimony. Think of the word witness or evidence. If you were to give testimony as a piece of evidence in a legal setting, think of it in this case, in verse 6, as the ransom being a testimony. Not the normal way we think about testimony, but this is on the cross, God is bearing witness to something. The cross is a blazing testimony of God's heart for the nations. The cross is a testimony of his grace and saving mercy extended to the rich and the poor and anyone that would be excluded by these false teachers in Ephesus who ought not prevail with their views. Instead, in verse 6, the ransom is for all and the cross bears witness to it. The arms of Jesus stretched out for sinners like us. The testimony, or he bore witness to it, At the proper time. Reminding us, I think, that in God's providential span of human history, the cross was not occurring at a random time and place, but right on a pointed schedule. Not early or late, but as divinely ordained and decreed by God, it was a testimony given at the right or proper time. We see this language of proper time used in chapter 615. I think it's the same idea or concept, Chapter 6.15, God will display this, the coming of the Lord Jesus, that is, at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, King of kings and Lord of lords. Something happening at the proper time is a way of saying God's will and decree is being done in whatever is being described. What's being described in verse 6? The cross. So the ransom between and mediator between God and men is the man Christ Jesus who's truly God and truly man and he dies at the appointed time bearing witness to the mercy of God flowing toward sinners this is life for the nations because on the cross the new testament teaches that he purchases a people for himself from every nation tribe and tongue that doesn't sound very exclusivist sounds global Sounds like you're wrapping your arms around the world saying God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He loved the world. And whatever's going on in the minds of these false teachers who are undermining the scope and beauty and power of the gospel, they are in some way bringing disrepute upon and slander upon the cross by not proclaiming the mercy of God to the ends of the earth. And so Paul is going to make this clear to Timothy So that the call to pray, all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people would be rooted in the scope of God's ransom. A global display of mercy on a cross. Fourth observation. The fourth and final observation in our text is the mission. We've thought about the one God. We've thought about the one mediator. We've thought about the ransom. And now the mission in verse 7. Paul says, for this I was appointed. Now what's he appointed for? When he goes to use these words, these nouns preacher and apostle and later teacher in this verse. Preacher and apostle and teacher is what he's been appointed for this. Well, we've got to look here at verses 6 and 7 and how they connect. The cross is Jesus giving himself as a ransom for all. A testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher. Paul's saying the mission of Jesus has now become the message I am or have been appointed to proclaim to the world, namely that Jesus has come as a Savior for sinners. And he is especially emphasizing in verse 7 that he is a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth, which has led some scholars to wonder if Paul is pushing back on some of the false teaching that's trying to influence the Ephesian church. Are these people who are committing a common Jewish error that can be rooted in some misunderstandings in the Old Testament? And are they excluding the Gentiles from the purview of saving grace like a Jonah all over again? Paul says, I've been appointed for the Gentiles because God's heart is a mission for the world, that every nation, tribe, and tongue would come to know him. In verse 7, for this I was appointed. Jesus laid down his life. Paul, however, did not volunteer to be an apostle, Paul was appointed. It's a divine passive. He was appointed by God. He was appointed three things, a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. Thinking about these three nouns for a moment, he says, I'm appointed a preacher. It's the word herald. You needed heralds in the ancient world. Sometimes you needed something publicly announced. People would go to the gates of a city and hear ye, hear ye, or whatever they would say, some kind of equivalent in another language. And they they would call people to attention and they would share whatever news that was. Businesses would do this. Legal announcements were, being, were part of this. Royal announcements. You had people go out and trumpet blasts would get attention. And a herald would announce something. A herald had news. And Paul has news. There's no news better than his news. His news is that the man Christ Jesus has given himself as a ransom and is the mediator between God and men so that the one God is God our Savior who's come for us. Paul says, I was appointed to proclaim that. To herald it. To herald it. It's not something you do quietly. Heralds were not known for their soft-spokenness. You would, that would be your only day on the job. It's like, we can't hear you. You've you got to proclaim you, you've got to enunciate. You've got to lift up your voice. What are you trying to say of such great importance? He says, I was appointed a herald, a preacher, and, second noun, I'm appointed an apostle. An apostle is someone sent on behalf of another. He was appointed an apostle of Jesus, wasn't he? We get this in 1 Timothy 1.1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God. So this isn't a divinely appointed herald, a divinely appointed apostle. And then he says, unexpectedly... I am telling the truth. I am not lying. And then he gets to his third noun, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. It's kind of unexpected, though, that he would pause to say, by the way, I'm telling the truth. I am not lying. It makes you wonder whether some of those false teachers in Ephesus were calling into question Paul's credibility. That he's an apostle for the Gentiles, a teacher of the Gentiles. He says, I am not lying about this. I mean, were people trying to bring disregard and, and disrepute on Paul's ministry, saying, oh, you know, if Paul's going for the Gentiles, he's got things wrong. He wasn't appointed an apostle for the Gentiles. Paul takes a moment here to say that his apostleship, that he, has been, uh, that he has been proclaiming and that is the root for all of his letter writing, he says, I'm telling the truth, I am not lying. That kind of insistence comes so unexpectedly that we wonder if emphasizing his apostleship was necessary because of something going on confusing-wise in the Ephesian church. And the reason we wonder that is because in his letters, when he takes the moment to emphasize the authority of his apostleship, it tends to be in context where people have called it into question. So maybe here, I'm telling the truth, I am not lying. Is his way of insisting that those false teachers continue to be false in the things that they say, even about the Apostle Paul. But he says, I'm a teacher of the Gentiles. I teach. You get this impression in the book of Acts when the early church gathers. They gather to learn, they pay attention to the Apostles' teaching, they want to grow in their understanding. A key identity factor in being, or a key uh, part of being a Christian, our identity as a disciple of Jesus, is that we are a people who are learning. We want to be people who learn, people who are taught. That's one of the reasons we gather on the Lord's Day for corporate instruction and gathering under the word of God. And he says here, look, I was appointed a herald. I was appointed an apostle. I was appointed a teacher of the Gentiles. Teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. You could translate those last few phrases faithfully and truthfully. To be a teacher in faith or a teacher in truth is to teach or to perform such a function reliably. Not only is he a legitimate apostle, I'm telling the truth, I am not lying, he says, but I am teaching the Gentiles in faith and in truth. I'm teaching them faithfully. I'm teaching them truthfully. So you can depend on me to teach and you can trust what I'm teaching. Both faithfully and truthfully. Those terms characterize Paul's ministry. He is a truthful teacher of the gospel, a faithful apostle to the nations about the one Savior for all people. We do not have one gospel for certain groups and another gospel for other groups. There is one God, one mediator, one ransom. We've got the same gospel, the same gospel. For any and all sinners you can imagine. One gospel. There's not some elite group that gets this gospel. And some other group that gets another message. There is one savior for all who will come to him. So our urging to the ends of the earth is. Then come to him. Come to Christ. Flee to Christ. Turn from sin. Trust the one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus. He alone saves. He alone has given himself as the ransom for sinners to purchase our redemption. A people not belonging to some elite and tribal group, but instead a people part of a church comprised of the nations of every tribe and tongue. A savior to the ends of the earth. We say, come to him. And we say, rejoice in him that he is your ransom, your deliverer. Let's pray.